In this episode, I, the Reverend Lana Hurst, had the pleasure of talking with our communications manager, the Reverend Amy Arnold, about my journey towards realizing that I am trans. Now, let's be clear, this was definitely not a straightforward path, and it hasn't necessarily been an easy one. There's still so many things that I'm working through and figuring out, and the reality is, for me, at the end of the day, I am incredibly grateful to be at this place where I have been able to embrace this part of myself. But it took a lot of work to get here, and I'm still doing a lot of work. And the truth of the matter is that there's still so much more to know about me. And so my hope for you is that as you listen to this episode, that you could find ways that the Spirit is inviting you to know yourself more fully. Where do you see those parts of yourself that are hidden beginning to have an opening? What is it that you want to learn to embrace, to love more fully? To know ourselves and to love ourselves is a sacred journey, and it makes the world such a beautiful place. So let's dive in together, friends. Enjoy. When we recorded part one, there was definitely a sense that as we recorded, I wasn't really out yet publicly. There were people that knew on a much smaller scale. It was interesting to try to navigate that conversation because I wanted to be authentic and share my story, but also not share too much of my story or more than I was comfortable with at the time. Now I feel more free, though, to talk about it and talk about that experience of coming out and talk about just being trans in general and my own journey with that. I feel like there's a lot there that certainly was touched on in some way in the first episode, but not really explored. You guys, it is so exciting to be able to introduce Lana as herself. I'd love to start with sort of the same piece we started with last time, which was what were you taught growing up? So I think as a kid, I remember seeing very clear gender roles. And it wasn't necessarily in the way of like women stay at home and men do the work because in the world that I came from, everyone had to work. Like there wasn't a division of work in the sense of like only some people worked outside the home. Pretty much everyone that I knew was working outside the home who was an adult. What was different was that women also did the cooking usually. Men would do barbecue, but women would cook in the home. Men would cook outside the home, literally outside in the yard. I remember at church, the preacher was always a man. There was a clear sense that the genders had different functions, but both of them needed to work. And if anything, the women did more of the behind the scenes work that benefited everyone, Mm. whereas the men sort of got to do the more public facing work. And that definitely bothered me. And I I do feel like I saw a disconnect between what women were maybe celebrated for, like they were celebrated as good cooks and good housekeepers or good caretakers. And there was also a different expectation around emotion. Coming from a Southern culture, I did see men cry. It wasn't that men didn't cry. But it was that they were slower to show emotion than women. 
You know, there was a a sense in which there were places where it was okay for men to cry and women had a little more leeway, it felt like, in terms of expressing emotion. I was sort of taught that there are these differences, particularly around emotion and the kinds of work that the two different, and of course, I was certainly taught there were two genders. There were Mm -hmm. men and women or boys and girls, male or female. There was no anything else. I don't remember seeing any examples of gender non-conforming people. It was all sort of, these are the genders. And, and I felt so constricted. I felt like people were looking at me and saying that I was a boy. And therefore, I had to perform in these ways. I had to like the outdoors. I had to want to hunt one day because men hunted in our community. Mm-hmm. But it was like, I, I just want to hang out with the girls. <laughs> I want to do what they're doing. That to me seems fulfilling. But I remember when I was maybe five and Ricky Lake was on TV. We had moved away from my grandparents. We were living in Tampa at the time. So much more of a metropolitan area. And I think it was just me. I think Ricky Lake was just like on in the background. But I remember there was a little trans girl on TV And they were talking to the mom about how she, you know, made the decision that she would allow her child to live as a girl. I was like, oh my gosh, I think that's me. Like, I can really identify with that. And yet, I never saw that reflected in the world around me. It was only like some really distant reality that was happening somewhere with one person in the world. And yet that was one of the first times where I really felt like I understood what was happening to me. And so you had all of a sudden this sense of someone else has gone through something like this, but that sort of someone else was not anywhere to be found nearby. Right. And it certainly didn't feel safe to like go tell someone like, oh, I'm like this kid. It still felt like this is a secret. And certainly in this case, with this secret came shame. I was the problem. Something was wrong with me. And I should not be telling people that that's what's wrong with me because people will no longer love me. So hard to have our identities tied up as that of us as problem rather than I feel like sort of in terms of developmental stages, perhaps early adolescence is the first time when you're really thinking about pushing back against what has been offered to you. Mm -hmm. But that is allowed in some communities more than it is allowed in others. Right. I didn't grow up religious. I didn't have the capital C church sitting over my family in that way. So I was able to push back on things that maybe you couldn't, or at least definitely didn't feel like you could. Yeah, there's definitely no sense in which we could, well, in which I felt like I could push back on these ideas. There was a longing to, I mean, it's kind of interesting because when my mom married my stepdad, he was, their decision was to not go to church. So once they got married and we moved away, I wasn't going to church. But I already had a sense of what the church 
at least my grandparents' church and my grandparents expected from me out of life. Mm. You know, not like I had this fully developed theology, but I certainly had these implicit understandings from observing them and just witnessing their lives and the things that they did talk about was enough for me to have a sense of like, this is how things ought to be. And I am not in the category of ought to be. So I need to conceal myself, hide myself, become something different. I'd love to come back to that ought to be idea later, because I imagine that that comes up at so many different points in your journey. (laughs) This sense of shame coming out in this phrase of I ought to be like this. And then eventually coming to the understanding of the world ought to be a little bit more like dot, 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 Mm. liberating, freeing. What was it about the girls and women that you related with more? You said you felt their activities were more fulfilling to you, which is a big word for a four-year-old, but you already knew the activities that the men were doing weren't as close to your heart. Right. For instance, my grandpa would go hunting, you know, and he would hunt deer I had no interest in hunting, but I did have interest in like making crafts with my grandma. And I did have interest in being in the kitchen and seeing what they were doing. And the way that they talked to each other was different than the way I saw men talk to each other. There was more of a sense of community. Not that the men didn't have community because I I certainly feel that they do. The women were the caregivers of the community. And I felt very much like I wanted to be a caregiver. I wanted to take care of other people. And I could tell that they were taking care of me. And certainly that was true. Like my grandpa was taking care of me as well. But he wasn't doing it to the same emotional level that Mm -hmm. like my grandma was, for instance. There was a nurturing, emotional like a gooeyness to her love that was like being wrapped in cookie dough or something. Sounds like you longed for a sense of intimacy with others that perhaps wasn't there with this like pretty rigid understanding of who men are, what men ought to like to do, how they are supposed to be in relationship with other people and with the church doing these, as you said, sort of like the more frontline, they're in the positions that are being seen Whereas the women may be popping it up in the background. And there was a longing that I had for the women to be seen for the work that they were doing. Growing up, my grandma, she is never allowed to be called a preacher, but she was allowed to lead prayer time in their church where somebody gets up there and they take prayer requests, kind of like joys and concerns in a lot of mainline churches. They call them prayer requests and praise reports. But it's a very informal time, and it's usually lay-led in their community. My grandma was often one of the people doing it, one of the few women who did it. And she would sort of like preach as she did it. It was like she would step into this authority and this sense of talking out of her own experience of God's love. Mm -hmm. And even though like theologically, I have lots of disagreements with my grandma, I always wanted for her the capacity to be recognized for those gifts and for the church to make space for her to really lean into that. If she had grown up in a different world, I imagine she would have been a pastor. She's a community creator. She's a caregiver. These things that we often, for sure, in Southern culture put on women are really pastoral work. 
And I think that's the really sticky thing, right? Is like the older that I got and the more that I did learn. I remember looking at the Jesus story and thinking, I just felt so torn up inside when Mm -hmm. the church that I was at in high school, they were more like a neo-charismatic church, like a Pentecostal, speaking in tongues, being slain in the spirit, very ecstatic in their expression, lifting up their hands and clapping and singing, shouting, very, very expressive church. But they had very clear distinctions again about gender. It was interesting, though, because they allowed women to preach. The church was founded by a woman. Like for them, Mm -hmm. and even the phrase they allowed women to preach, right? It still suggests Uh a patriarchal structure in which the men are the ones who even have to open the door, right? They're the gatekeepers still in Mm -hmm. this scenario. But they believed that women were called to preach and teach in the church. So it was like, I suddenly had this other vision of like, oh, look, women can do this and women are doing this, but there were still limits. I think they still taught the idea that the man is the head of the house and the wives have to submit to their husbands, which was always weird to me. It just feels like such a dichotomy. Like you're telling me that the pastor, you're telling me she leads this whole congregation and then goes home and submits to her husband. She can be a leader in a much larger space, but as soon as she's in the nuclear family space, nope, no Mm. more leadership. Like it just felt like such a strange boundary to me that didn't really make sense and didn't really, I didn't see how that could play out in real life very well. But I think what it did for me was it showed me that gender is not so fixed and like these roles are not as fixed to gender as we make them. And certainly as the world that I grew up in made them. It was like one of those moments of seeing a crack in that boundary line. Like, oh, there is a way or there are places where these roles are different. They play out very differently. You're starting to see there could actually be a different world here. If this crack exists, what else does? What else is a lot less durable than I thought? Mm -hmm. When did you decide to go into ministry? And what was the scene that it happened? So I was 14 when I decided to become a pastor. So I was attending that church in high school. I had been there several months. And for me, I just sort of fell in love with, uh, at the time I framed it as I'm falling in love with Jesus. There's this real sense in which God became a very personal presence. God was not detached, but God was intimately involved in my life is how I experienced God in that community. It was that spring break, we were visiting my grandma and my cousin asked me, she's like, do you still want to be a teacher? Which is what I had wanted to be for years. I mean, I used to go to Future Educators of America conference, but I remember the words that came out of my mouth were, no, I think I'm going to be a preacher. And my grandma put her hand over my hand and said, I've always known. It was just this really like sweet moment. And, you know, that has meant a lot of different things to me. And I'm continuing to rework what that calling means to me. That moment did change a lot for me because it did, at the time, set me on a path towards pursuing ministry. And I didn't come up from a world where seminary was a thing. I didn't even really know what seminary was. I began to set my course for preparing for a public ministry, a vocational ministry. 
And at the time, I certainly believed that there were men and women in the world and God called both men and women. But I was surrounded by many people who didn't even believe that. Like I would constantly argue with friends, several of whom were women who would say women could not be called to preach. It's like, but you're a woman, don't, <laughs> don't you care about this? ended up moving in that direction. And that's what ultimately led me to go to Southeastern University and Assemblies of God School, Pentecostal, you know, and that's where I really, that's where a lot more of the cracks in my foundation began to come up, yeah. particularly as I took more advanced Bible classes. But it was really in writing my master's thesis where I was like, oh, this whole story is about change and is about how we discern God in the midst of change and how we learn to be open to that change. I think that we have to balance out like it's not some forceful push into a future that's against people's will, but it's an invitation, an invitation to dance with the divine into this new world, a world where people are made whole and seen for who they are a different kind of understanding of what God is up to in the world. What are the dance moves that you wish people had offered you along your training when you were still presenting as a man? Even looking at seminary, I wish that there would have been more explicit conversation around trans identity. When I was in seminary, that was the first time that I really met trans people. So both at seminary, but also I ended up going to the Q Christian Conference at the time. It was called GCN, Gay Christian Network Conference. And that was my first time like going to hear trans presenters in person and hearing their stories and being so intrigued, but also so terrified to listen to them because it was like, I don't want this to be true about me because then I will need to go on some other journey that I just don't know if I can go on right now. I wish that I knew that people around me were more open to this or more loving or more caring. I wish that it wasn't such a thing that I felt like people didn't know about. It was like, of course, in seminary, especially because we had a few trans folks in seminary, it would come up in conversation. But even I would hear people's hesitation around these things or their sort of yield signs that came up for them when they talked about it. Like there was something that kept them from fully embracing it, from being able to really say, oh, I for sure affirm fully and stand with trans folks. There was a hesitation, even if it wasn't conscious for them, but I could hear it in the way that they talked about these things. And it reaffirmed my own yield signs within my heart. Mm, you ought not to go there. Right. That journey would be even more difficult than the one you've already done. Yes. Coming out as gay. Yeah. It just felt so scary, so terrifying and overwhelming. So having a few voices of human assurance. Yes. Not just for the folks who supported it sounds like such a terrible baseline to support someone else's identity, but to be able to look at you and say like you, if you were going on this journey, that would be great too. We'd right. love and support you. And we believe God would love and support you. There's nothing you can do to lose God's love. Mm -hmm. I needed safety. I needed to know that I would not be left alone if I went on the journey. 
And at the time, I was so new to the LGBTQ world in general. And I came out as gay when Caitlyn Jenner transitioned publicly. So my coming out sort of coincided with this major Kardashian family person that was like major headlines. And I remember seeing the way people reacted. And I was like, I don't want that kind of reaction. I can't even think about if that is about me. I'm not even in that place because the world that I see is not even safe for her. So what makes me think that it would be safe for me? I couldn't even acknowledge that I was asking the question about me. I still wasn't accepting of the fact that my own gender identity was much less clear than my sexual orientation. Even that, right? People were still questioning me from the world I came from. Are you sure this is true about you? Maybe you're wrong. How do you know? It's already hard enough with that one thing that you felt very confident in of like you had been married to your best friend from college and you were like, I don't belong here. I belong elsewhere because I'm not straight. So there was this place where you felt like I don't have belonging here. So there is somewhere else here, but maybe there wasn't that sort of space for a gender journey. At least not yet. By the end of seminary, I had learned about more non-binary, genderqueer identities. And I remember coming to a place where I was like, you know, I think that I probably fall somewhere in that category. So I started using genderqueer to describe my own gender identity. I didn't really want to make a huge thing about it because, again, I felt so insecure in embracing that. But it did open up a world for me where it was like, I'm going to try painting my nails. I'm going to try putting on eyeshadow. I'm going to try mascara. These small little things that finally there was a new world opening up to me. When did you feel it open up enough for you to finally say, I think genderqueer describes a certain part of my journey. And now the word that I more identify with is trans. And that wasn't until this year. I noticed that I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with people calling me he or him. I have had a sense of discomfort and disease with my own body for a long, long time. But Mm. I was noticing it more. It was coming up more and more. And then I took a trauma class for my mental health counseling degree in the spring. The first day of class, we did this meditation and I was sobbing. I was like, I don't know why why I'm so overwhelmed with emotion right now. It was surprising. It caught me off guard. In therapy, I just started saying like, there's something in my childhood that I feel really disconnected from and I don't really know what it is. But I know that I need to explore it. I know that I'm feeling disintegrated. The way that I framed it was it's almost like there's this box. There's lots of chains around the box. The key's been thrown away and it's deep in my unconscious mind. I now know that the box is there. I know that it's been there my whole life, but I don't really know what's in it. And I'm scared to look in it. Mm multiple therapy sessions of me just sort of crying. And it was like, I don't really know what I'm feeling so disconnected about. 
Mm. It was like, I know, but I don't know. (laughs) I went back and was looking in my journal and I had written earlier in the year that I sat in therapy that I was trans, but I don't even remember saying that. I was dissociating so much from that identity, from that sense of being that I was living this split inner world. Mm. So I ended up coming to a place of just sort of recognizing, okay, I think I have gender dysphoria. And then I was also taking a psychopathology class. And of course, gender dysphoria is in the DSM. When I read about childhood gender dysphoria, I was like, that describes me to a T. It was a little harder for me to connect with the adult piece because I didn't want to connect. And I had this thought, this like line of thinking that was like, well, maybe I can just let that go. Maybe I can just recognize like, yeah, I had gender dysphoria as a child and maybe every now and then I experienced dysphoria and I can grieve that and let it go. I will just continue living my life as I've lived my life now for 30 some odd years and it's fine. We'll figure it out gender dysphoria at large is about experiencing some kind of disconnect between your own internal experience of your gender and the way that you feel it in your body or the way that you feel it in the roles that you perform or the way that you look, the way that you present to the world, for instance, the way you dress, the way you sound. Specifically in children, it often shows up as not wanting to perform anticipated gender roles, even though everyone around them is sort of performing those roles and it's seen as normative in their world. But for them, there's some resistance. It feels like there's something that they can't quite connect to. And so for me as a kid, just feeling like I wasn't connecting to the roles that I was expected to play as a boy. I didn't want to be rough and tough. The way that one of my family members would describe me was that I was a city boy, which was his Mm -hmm. way of saying that I wasn't a country boy. I didn't want to play outside and get dirty. I didn't want to roll around in the mud. I played outside a lot though, but I was playing house outside. I was the princess that needed to be saved. There was this strong disconnect with the way that other people perceived me and told me who I was. I believed as a child that they were profoundly wrong, that they were not seeing something, but that I couldn't convince them. Like there was no way of changing their minds about who I was. Mm. For me as a kid, that was so hard to grasp. And that's what caused so much of that dissociation. Everybody dissociates to some degree. Daydreaming is an example of dissociation. But there are more ongoing examples of dissociation, right? So people who have trauma, usually what happens is in their psyche, a part of their psyche dissociates because it's too much for the psyche to hold the traumas. The -hmm. psyche splits and the trauma gets held in a different part of the psyche, not disappearing from the psyche, but being disconnected. So then there are these sort of fractures in the person's psyche. So for me, I think that's sort of what happened as a child, right? I just began to fracture myself in order to hold the way that people saw me and the way that I saw myself. I began to recognize that from a very early age that people would not believe this reality. So I just had to put that reality somewhere else. Mm -hmm. As I think of this sort of box that's, you know, wrapped in chains and the keys thrown away and I cast it into the depths of my unconscious mind. 
But again, just because it's cast into the depths of my unconscious, it's still there. It kept popping up. It kept getting triggered by different events in my life. I remember in middle school, for instance, when my voice started changing, oh, that was such a hard reality for me. It was like, I didn't really want my voice to change, but also at the same time, I wanted it to change because I wanted to be accepted by the people around me. I didn't want to grow facial hair, but I also wanted to grow facial hair. So maybe I could be more acceptable to the world. There were always these dueling parts of me, especially as I entered puberty, which can be one of the most challenging times for gender dysphoria, because when your secondary sex characteristics, for instance, growing a beard, growing breasts, getting hair around your body, all of those different characteristics that we just naturally go through can be terrifying for trans kids. And yet for me, at that point, I was already so dissociated from any sense that I was a girl, but also recognizing that that reality was still held so deep within me. It's so hard to describe, to be connected to that reality, but also deeply disconnected from that reality. I wasn't allowed to play with Barbies or have Barbies, you know, because those were girls' toys. But I found a way around it by... <laughs> You know, I loved Star Wars and I loved Queen Amidala and they came out with Star Wars dolls. So I had the Star Wars action figures, but I got full on Queen Amidala dolls where I could change her outfits and I could do her hair. It was like my way of getting to have a Barbie or I had a Poison Ivy and Batman doll. And it was like I could do Poison Ivy's hair. Being able to touch a world that I was told I was not allowed to touch. So I felt like I learned also a subversiveness when I was a kid. I learned how to find ways to break the boundaries without transgressing the boundary. I learned how to like put my finger on the boundary without crossing it fully. Sounds exhausting. It was exhausting and it has created lots of trauma responses even now that I still deal with that I'm learning how to or I'm having to unlearn not every moment that I had to pay extra close attention to what people were saying so I could know the ins and outs and know where the boundaries were. If I missed the boundary, I needed to learn how to not miss it the next time, mm. right? Like I felt like I had to learn perfection around people's boundaries. So in effect, I no longer had my own boundaries because my life became about learning what other people's boundaries were. It became about learning what the social boundaries were and learning how to stay within those, but also feeling immensely frustrated by those social boundaries. There was like a hatred of those boundaries, but also those boundaries felt like a master to me. I had to follow them. Otherwise, I would lose all love. You ought to be a rule follower. Yes. This is often a thing uh, for any of our listeners who know the Enneagram at all. Both Lana and I are Enneagram 2s. And Enneagram 2, the helper, the deepest fear is being unloved or unnecessary. But really, it's about I want to do good so that I am perceived as good, which means that I am lovable. Yes. These wounds come from deep and yeah. it's a really important thing to unlearn that love is so dang conditional. It could be as uncertain as which way the wind goes, whether someone is going to love you today. Maybe they'll love you tomorrow, but today if you say or do the wrong thing, 
quote unquote, at least for today, you have lost someone's love. Mm -hmm. As I've gotten older, and I think something that has helped me, particularly in coming out this time around, is I think that I've been learning that love is not so fragile. And Mm -hmm. if it is so fragile, then perhaps it's not the love that I'm really looking for to live in such a way that I'm always having to figure out what the boundaries are is a scarcity mindset. Part of that's because as a child, there was a scarcity of understanding in terms of understanding my identity as trans. That's culturally, that was true. That was true in my family. I mean, there was little to no representation of trans kids in the media. Certainly none that was like really great and positive. As an adult, I'm having to unlearn that scarcity and say, you know, there's actually more in the world than I think there is. There's actually more goodness. There's more love and there's more hope. And I can lean into that reality. When I came out publicly, I mean, that was like my most popular post on social media. You know, I was like, oh, (laughs) I was kind of surprised when I came out as gay before I had lots of mixed reactions. You know, I had mostly positive, but there were definitely people, partly because of the world that I was coming from, who were very willing to share their opinions so publicly Mm -hmm. on social media about me being queer. And this time around, there was none of that. Mm. It was sort of like the burden was on them to be silent. (laughs) Mm. Everyone else, there was just so much love and affirmation. And even coming out to my church, there was so much fear for me. And again, this like scarcity of I'm going to lose their love. I'm going to lose their respect. I'm going to lose their trust. And yet that hasn't been the case at all. The way that I think about it is from a research perspective. I have this hypothesis that I have had since I was a child and sure there was some data to back it up, Mm. but I've collected a lot more data now and I'm able to analyze that data now. And I'm able to see that the data is actually skewed towards more than it is towards scarcity. Yes, there is harm. Yes, there is pain. Yes, there is suffering. And yes, there is a lot of ignorance, certainly still a lot of ignorance around trans issues. But, or rather, and there's also a willingness on many people's parts to learn, to grow, to be humble and to say, you know, I actually don't know. And that's what I have found much more in coming out this time. Part of it is, yes, like for me, the privilege of the community that I've been able to live in, the people that I've been able to meet, the relationships I've been able to form. And my hope is, you know, especially when I think about people who are like me, you know, little Lanas Mm -hmm. who lived in a place where there just wasn't any knowledge about this. My hope is that we are creating a world where that knowledge is more readily available and accessible to people. I remember seeing a tweet recently, God made wheat and we are able to make bread. God made grapes and we are able to make wine. If God didn't want us to be creative and to help be co-creators, God wouldn't have given us the ingredients. Mm -hmm. God gave you some good ingredients here (laughs) to have that freedom and to have a community that for the most part, Either, as you said, put the burden on themselves to stay silent this time rather than posting something rude or inflammatory on your post. 
but also that you were surprised by how unfragile so much of the love was. Learning to let go of that scarcity mindset really paid off here. And I think right. your decision and ability to have this courageous space and this courageous heart will continue to pay off for the rest of your life. And I dearly feel for people whose situations are simply not safe for them to do that. Whereas you said, like there is actual scarcity. Everyone deserves an unfragile love. Everybody has unfragile love from God. And yet we also need human hands to be God's hands. We need human minds to represent God's mind. We are each other's keeper. It's been such a joy to see that people are keeping you in this time with that unfragile love. Absolutely. Like you said, not everybody is in a place where they are safe. Not everybody has the resources or has a world around them that is willing to embrace them. With that reality in mind, my hope is that I see the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the kingdom of God as largely about a redistribution of resources. And I don't think that it's just resources that we can touch and taste and feel and smell. I think it's resources that we feel with our bodies, our hearts, our minds, resources of love and joy. And so I think my hope is that we would redistribute those resources as well, that we would learn to take stock of where the love is in us and where do we distribute that love and how might we redistribute that love more equitably as a culture, as a society, as a church, because people need it. People need love. What is one way that you want to do that through your church as you serve as their pastor for however long it is that you get to serve in Glen Cove, New York? What is that mark of love that you hope to leave? Part of it is just the willingness to say, here I am, this is me, and this is who I am, and I love me. And I, as the pastor, do have a different kind of power to create a space where people can come here and say, this is me especially when it comes to different kinds of identities. They feel so personal, so deep to who we are. And there often is this, especially for trans identities, this dysphoric experience. And I want it to be a place where people can come with whatever experience they have internally and externally and just be, exist, breathe, and know that they are loved. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much always for your courage and for your leadership and for putting abstract thoughts into very concrete words. And thank you for giving us the story of you part two. I have come to a place in my life in which I have finally been able to embrace this part of myself that caused so much shame and turmoil for years. And I know that I am not alone on this journey. The realities that trans and gender non-conforming folks face each day can be overwhelming and incredibly painful, sometimes even deadly. So if you're listening to this and you're searching for someone to talk to, even if it's not about gender identity, we ask that you would reach out to us. You can find us in a number of ways, but there are so many organizations that are here for you. For instance, 
I would encourage you to check out the Q Christian Fellowship. They are a group of Christians who are affirming of LGBTQIA identities, and they seek to provide a lot of resources, including small groups that you can be part of from anywhere in the world. Similarly, I encourage you to check out the Transmission Ministry Collective. They're focused specifically on providing resources for trans identity in the church, but they have some really great resources. And if you're looking, if you want to connect with people, they're another great place to look at. But we are here for you. And of course, don't forget that as you listen to this podcast, you can always connect with us on our social media pages. We have found under the Glenwood table on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can actually check out the video of this podcast in whole on YouTube. But we'd also love to hear from you. As we look to the new year, we're thinking, what kinds of conversations do we want to have this new year? We've got one more episode coming your way. It's called Keeping Christ in Christmas. So stay tuned because we're going to explore what that phrase can mean for us as we reimagine Christian faith in the 21st century. And send us your ideas. Let us know what kinds of conversations, what kinds of topics you want to see us explore. And as always, until next time, remember that you are loved and you are enough. Peace, friends.